Welcome to Godsplaining, contemplative preachers, contemporary age. Each week, join the Dominican friars as they consider all things Catholic. Welcome to Godsplaining. My name is Father Bonaventure Chapman, and I am joined by Father Gregory Pine, who is in still a different country, as far as I know, uh, post-Easter, sorry, post-Easter Sunday, but still in this Easter season, so we're wearing white for that, as you can tell. Um, <laughs> Father Gregory, how has Easter in Switzerland gone? Um, so Easter in Switzerland has been, uh, it's been good. I had mass for an English-speaking community in Bern, which is like 35 minutes away from Freiburg, which was wonderful. So I was there uh, for Holy Thursday and then for the Easter Vigil, and then I was with the community here in Freiburg for Good Friday for Easter Sunday. Um, other highlights, I like to import um, American customs, or I like to tell people here that I am bringing them American customs and then just doing things that I like to do. Um, so I did that uh, one time I cooked dinner, and I was like, it's a ancient American custom to have breakfast for dinner, which Ooh. is code for like, I really like pancakes at all hours of the day, and you guys haven't served me a single pancake. Um, so I did a similar thing on Easter where I was like, it is an ancient custom of the province of St. Joseph to have a bonfire you know, on every solemnity that begins with E and ends with Easter. Um, so we had a bonfire and like the Europeans kind of came outside, like, what exactly do we do? You know, I'm not exactly sure what this entails. I'm a bit nervous. And I was like, hey, just, you know, come and everything will be fine. And by the end of it, they were like, yes, bonfires. I am 100% for bonfires. When do we start jumping over them? So it was, uh, it was great. Okay, a bonfire. Well, I mean, bonfire is a French word, right? It comes from uh, bonnet fiery. <laughs> Uh, which means good flames, correct? Exactly. Yep, nailed it. That's that's the very same. So that's what I thought. I, I explained that to them as well, and they were like, ah, yes, it's like the potato. It's like a new world thing that came back to the old world and acquired its own life of... Never mind, I'll stop talking. That's so, great. Yeah. And did you... Now, and I assume there were nice Swiss chocolates for Easter as well? There were, yeah. A, an abundance of Swiss chocolates. The folks in Bern are super generous, um, super lovely, and they just send you home with fistfuls of like large rabbits. Um, from That's all great. kinds of Swiss chocolatiers, so if you want among Swiss, which I can't discern. Well, if you want Swiss chocolate, then, uh, dear listeners, uh, please write to Father Gregory Pine at fathergregorypineswisschocolate.org, and uh, he will send you Swiss chocolate rabbits. Um, That's it. We are not here to talk about Swiss chocolate rabbits. Um, we are here to talk about something even stranger, which is this is one of our <laughs> film and theology episodes, I suppose. Uh, where Father Gregory and I talk about some sort of artistic or entertainment type thing. Usually it's books, but we've been moving into, into films. Next thing you know, we'll be doing Instagram or tweet posts, tweet and theology or something. Those will not be worth watching. <laughs> but these might. So we're talking here, we're doing directors, you know. Maybe we'll do genres at some other point, or like actors. I'd love to do one on Kevin Costner and like just kind of walk through his videography and how American he is and yet how bad of an actor he is. Um, <laughs> but I can't turn away. I need to watch his movies. There's just something about yeah. him. But that's, yeah. again, not what we're doing. No. Wes Anderson. That's who we're doing. So, And I'm sure all our listeners are really excited because they've seen a bunch of Wes Anderson. So um, Wes Anderson, what movies would the, would the fans, what would they know? What's, what's, you know, stands I think out? It, yeah, so probably the most famous ones would be like, um, let's see, Royal Tenenbaums is pretty famous. Um, Fantastic Mr. Fox, pretty well known. Grand Budapest Hotel, that might be the one that people would know the most because it's, it's recent and famous. Mm -hmm. 
And um, I guess the most recent one to have come out might be Isle of Dogs. Uh, he's got one in the works that has been delayed by the pandemic called The French Dispatch. So, yeah, I mean, there are others. So the first one was called Bottle Rocket. Um, he often has the the Wilson brothers in his movies, yeah. both Owen and Luke. So, yeah, that one uh, featured both. Rushmore, um, uh, the story of an enterprising you know, high school kid. Um, the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou featuring... The one, the only, the greatest American actor of our day, Bill Murray, mm-hmm. um, who appears in quite a few of their films. Yes, fact. he does. Um, and Moonrise Kingdom is mm. a kind of like weird Edward Norton when he's not, you know, stealing Italian treasure, uh, does things like that. So those would be the ones people would have heard of. And are there others? He's got some shorts, I think, but those are the main ones. But you say you said you did like Moonrise Kingdom and then you prefaced it with like weird like as if those other ones you described before don't also take on that name uh that that predicate Mm. but i would say that like i mean i could be wrong about this but they're just the weirdest movies and i like weird movies like i'm not you know i'm a brazil fan okay so dear readers (laughs) um yeah but they're yeah if so wes anderson you know you can kind of tell certain i guess was it um what's the explodey guy Michael Mann or something like you know Transformers movies or something like you can tell a kind of certain like oh no that director's doing that because there's so much metal it's like a junkyard just went off in my face Um, (laughs) Wes Anderson also you can kind of tell a Wes Anderson film um, because there are certain features or like tricks autographs you could even say about these things so that they're distinctive marks uh, characteristics of these things so what do you I mean what horrible things are distinctive marks but Wes Anderson films (laughs) Man, savage. Okay, yeah. leading question. As you, everyone knows, it. I'm I'm very neutral on uh, Wes Anderson. It's like G.K. Chesterton, so we're we're going. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think things that identify it. Well, like you know, when you watch a Coen Brothers movie, you typically find out pretty shortly, uh, you know, within the first few minutes that it's Coen Brothers movies just by the cast. So if it's got Francis McDormand or John Turturro or John Goodman, you know, or Steve Buscemi, even like. You're like, wait a second, what's going on here? I've seen these people in another movie when which they were playing practically the same roles, but variations on a theme. So too, you know, with Wes Anderson, he has a lot of similar people act in his movies, like we mentioned, Bill Murray, Luke Wilson, mm-hmm. Owen Wilson. Uh, but there's also, um, there's a look to a Wes Anderson movie. And um, they're not so much, uh, what would you say, directed or realized uh, to use the French verb, because never mind, stop it, Greg. You're not interesting. Um, so they are curated. You know, he's like mm-hmm. he's like made an experience for you, and he has attended to all of the details of that experience. It's like if you've got like a friend who's very detail oriented, but also very fussy. Um, like likes hotels and TripAdvisor and wants to give you a great experience of a city, um, which you might find overbearing, but like kind of pleasant and delightful. Like that's that's your entree to a Wes Anderson film. You're like, wow, look at this. Look, wow, such detail, such such care, such attention. Um, and so it gives you the feeling of being in something that's uh, that has been realized with painstaking care so i think that's probably the first impression that i have when i watch his movies yeah it's kind of like there was an exhibit here um in washington dc i think we went to it this at this uh, uh an art museum i think it was a technical art museum or something in handcrafts and it mm. was these little miniature crime scenes because it was like this this famous woman had done you know what i'm talking about um uh, and this is this is that one, the renwick 
I think it was Renwick, and this woman had done made up like little crime, like little models, because this was the old days before like computer computer stuff. And so she was excellent at like she'd probably grown up doing dollhouses and things, and then she just got a job as like crime, so, so like little blood and all that, and like people stuck in the you know the bathtubs, and it gets really gruesome. But like little crime scenes, and so they had these on display. And you kind of stumble upon, and you go in there, and you're like, oh, cool, play dollhouse. That's fun. You're like, oh, my gosh, knives on the wall? Uh, and then you just you steady yourself, and you look, and you go, wow, the lighting's really good. That's the wall. She got the wallpaper. Really, that's I, – I can see where they came in. No, I – and you're kind of, like, drawn into it. But there's this first, like, kind of revulsion of this is too weird and too whatever. It's the same when, like, you meet a kind of – no, 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 no one's like this that we know. Of course, of course, of course. But like someone who's just a little not, not with it. Maybe his social graces could be Dominican, could be me. Um, and you've missed the person. You're like, I'm out of here. I don't want to be with this person anymore. They're kind of creepy and weird. And then, but you're like, no, stay with it. And you sit there <laughs> and you're like, you know, no, there's something. Yeah, there's something here. Like I, you just have to get over the first kind. Of, and I feel like Wes Anderson when I watch his like Life Aquatic, you know. Anyone seen this movie? You're just immediately you're like, there's cart. It's like a cartoon. I have no. Why are this? Oh my gosh! They're on a submarine. This is just. I can't stand this. And you just gotta like, lean into it. And I pushed. I just got left. But you could lean into it, and I bet you would find really great things in it. Does that? Am I describing the correct way to like approach like kind of like miniature crime scenes? Yeah. No. I think I think that's true. And also. Uh, it's not just a matter of staging or scenery. It's also a matter of the human interactions um, because they're all like a little bit precious. Um, what yeah. the heck? How would I, how, yeah, yeah, yeah. How would I characterize this? Okay, so um, all, of, all of the conversation that he hosts between his characters at first blush seems like overproduced uh, or it seems almost stilted. You know, like sometimes mm -hmm. when you hear bad actors go through their lines, it's like the timing is wrong. It turns out that acting is really difficult. Um, if you're like, okay, I want you to act normal and you're just, you know, whatever, yeah. hanging out in the backyard and just doing whatever people do in a backyard, throwing a baseball, uh, you know, like acting normal is no big deal. But then when somebody has a camera on you and they're like, act normal, you're like, gah, yeah. yikes. Or even like when, when you, when you say this is God splitting at the beginning of an episode, you know, you can say it in a normal voice, like, I don't know, a hundred times out of a hundred when you're not being recorded. But then when you go to record it, you're like, this is God's plan. <laughs> yeah, just re just rewind this one. Um, you so know. when you when you um, interact with his characters at first, it's not like they're bad actors. It's like they're very good actors, but they're introducing a note of artificiality into everything that they do. Like all of their exchanges are a little too quick. All of them are a little too um, natural. All of them are a little too ironic. All of them are a little too flippant or, you know, things like that. Um, but it's almost as if it's been, it, this is an experience that's been curated for you. You know, you're, you're like not, not so much a, a spectator as you are like a kind of, I don't know, you're, you're being led by a docent through an experience. Right. Like, What's going on? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and you find yourself like, say for instance, like in the Hirshhorn in DC or something, you walk in and you're like, oh, there's a docent here. And then you think, nah, I'm out of here. Um, because some things shouldn't be cur you know, even if it's well curated and that docent probably knows plenty of ways to explain stupid art in there. Um, you're just like, I'm not gonna waste my time. Now, um, the curated experience of Wes Anderson films is not like the Hirshhorn, you say, um, and is, but is more like, uh, the Renwick gallery or, you know, the East Wayne of the uh, national gallery or some, something like that. So 
let's just uh, before we get into some some other themes go back to that um that the preciousness of the dialogue and the weird curating thing what do you why stop at that gig like what does that what does that tell us do you think about the human condition and what's he what's he what's he want us about yeah so i think that um so when i when i first encountered it i thought that it was it was unreconcilable with good art i thought it was bad um and i thought i kind of had the impression that wes anderson is able to capture everything, as it were, except for the human heart. As if to say that, like, this guy has such an attention to detail, or this guy has such an artistic eye, or this guy has whatever, um, that he is able to portray this really magnificent thing. But the one thing that's missing is the thing that should be spotlighted or highlighted, the thing that should be most prominent, which is the most excellent of all the creations that he has at his disposal, which is the, you know, the human person. But it's like that is where he just finds himself totally out of his depth. But I've had a kind of conversion having watched a few more of the movies. And I think that, um, like he's doing this thing, not so as to be, um, not to hold you off at arm's length, uh, but, but so as to give you a kind of critical distance to appreciate the deeper realities that he's portraying. Cause it, one thing that he cannot be accused of is something that's saccharine or something that's overly facile or romantic. Um, but he's he's giving you a kind of ironic distance from the realities, not to keep you off at arm's length, but actually to invite you into it in a way that's like somewhat subversive. And you're like, wow, that means nothing. You just said a bunch of words that have no real signification. Basically, I think that um, whether he's, you know, um, experiencing these things in a deep down level, I don't know. But I think he's come to a, an experience of the human condition where he's like, wow, a lot of these people have a real, real difficult time connecting. Mm. And I want to portray that. But I want to portray that so that I can show connection in a deeper way, in a more meaningful way. Because I don't want to just offer connection like it's available, you know, to all comers. Because truth be told, it's not. And I think a lot of people feel isolated. A lot of people feel alienated. And he's able to communicate that in a way that doesn't weigh down the viewer, but actually kind of clips along nicely. Uh, it's kind of fresh. It's kind of fun. It's kind of inviting. But then you can see through it access to to real connection which you know which lies in store for his characters and i think what he's saying it lies in store for for human people more broadly so yeah, yeah i think i want um we got to take a break here a quick moment um and i, I want to talk about this aspect maybe we'll go through i think moonrise kingdom is one of the uh an approachable one we could talk some of these angles here and get things but yeah walk through that human relationality because he has this way of abstracting it's not abstracting way of the mathematical sense, but there's something like he, as you say, he highlights. There's distance, such as you can see relationality more clearly. And I think that the characters in that kind of bring this out. And I'm sure you have other examples since you like this guy. So we're gonna take a quick break here. You're gonna hear from someone who's not one of us. Um, no idea. And uh, we'll be back in just a minute on God's Planning, talking about Wes Anderson and why you shouldn't just leave. You are listening to Godsplaining. Visit us at godsplaining.org to listen to our episodes, shop our store, and donate to our podcast. All gifts go to improving the podcast and bringing the gospel to more listeners. Thanks for your support. And we're back. See, awkward opening. Uh, talking about Wes Anderson and films uh, from him and the kind of relationality. So Father Gregory at the last uh, last session we ended with how he gets people right by getting them in a sense a little bit wrong. So when I think about this, uh, Moonrise Kingdom, which maybe some of our viewers have seen, has a tremendous cast. I mean, just fantastic. Of, of people who you would not 
you'd expect certain things about out of them that they don't give you. You know, Bruce Willis is in there, and he's not just busting stuff up and seeing dead people. Bill Murray's in there and basically gives you what you expect from Bill Murray, but that's because he just gives you other stuff, you know? <laughs> um, Edward Norton is in there as, like, a scoutmaster, and he does just a fantastic mm. job. Um, and it's predicated on this two these two teenagers running away and trying to connect on things. So maybe take us through a little bit of those... Um, the dimensions there and like what people would would have seen because people may have seen this one and then maybe we'll talk about one another one that you think people have seen it could be Royal Tenenbaums or perhaps um, uh, Grand Budapest or something yeah I think um, maybe I'll come at it by by way of indirection but like you said it's about two kids that separate from parents guardians responsible persons and then kind of come to a deeper appreciation of those relationships in coming back to uh, society reality communion and when I was going through his films, I realized that like a lot of them have to do with absent fathers, dead fathers, dying fathers, you know, like basically parents who are out of the picture. Um, like Bottle Rock is about, you know, three brothers who never grew up, who are kind of just like listless. Um, Rushmore is about a really astute kid whose parents really don't feature much in the film as I remember it, although it's been a while. I think I watched that when I was in Columbia. That's like six years ago. Whatever. Who cares? Hmm. You know, Royal Tenenbaums is about their dad dying. Life Aquatic... You know, he, the Bill Murray plays the dad, yeah. and his name in the movie, like his his son refers to him as Papa Steve. You know, so it's mm -hmm. like, you know, the whole father thing is really highlighted. Um, and then yeah, I think the only like present father in all of his movies is Fantastic Mr. Fox, who is a cartoon. Um, <laughs> so that should give some indication as to what's going on. Um, so I think that like, okay, what are those what are those most significant relationships in people's lives? Uh, you know, parents, siblings, best friends, spouses. Okay. Um, and then what do you do when those relationships fail? And I think that in, in these, in these different things, you see, uh, how people approach it. You can kind of set out on your own. You can seek to reconstitute that relationship. You can try to achieve some peace or healing in it. Um, you can kind of shut it out. Like you see three different approaches from the three different kids in the Royal Tenenbaums, all of which, you know, have their merits, all of which are broken in their own different ways. But it's like, yeah, it's so fascinating to see his characters go through their own kind of personal trials and tribulations, sometimes traumas, um, and then come out on the other side, somehow renewed with a fresh perspective. I mean, sometimes dead. <laughs> yeah, sure. Definitely but, a perspective. You, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but um, but having seen the thing in a new light, or having come to appreciate it in a new light, Darjeeling Limited is huge with that. It's three, it's three guys like going on um, a purposeless uh, train ride after their dad dies to go meet with their mom, who spoilers doesn't want to meet with them, you know. And they come to a deeper appreciation of their relationship as brothers and end up like content to ride the train with each other, even though their original destination was ill-fated and there is no next destination. It's like okay. That's the allegory there is maybe a little bit heavy handed, but he's not trying to make an epic. He's just making like an hour and 45 minute film. Yeah. Well, um, let me, um, yeah. well, let me jump in. I'm going to, uh, let me do Hegel. Um, and then, um, and then we'll take it back to something more reasonable. Um, although Hegel's <laughs> fine. So I think, uh, yeah, about the relation, especially the father figures in this case. Um, so Hegel has his view of the dialectic, which people don't understand. Um, but it's a, generally people think, oh, well, there's a thesis and then antithesis and then synthesis is the combination of the two, right? You know, so you've got peanut butter, thesis, jelly, antithesis, and then peanut butter and jelly, synthesis, boom, Hegelian logic right there. Nailed it in America. Um, 
But it's not actually like that. His dialectic is one of uh, the thesis and the synthesis are actually the same position, but the synthesis is the thesis seen from a new light thanks to the antithesis. So it's like peanut butter and then jelly and then peanut butter with sugar sprinkled on top or something because the sweetness of the jelly was supposed to so it's like it's it's i'm eating a peanut butter and jelly i'm eating a peanut butter sandwich i'm not eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich i'm just staying british and just sticking to one okay um and it seems like there's a this movement of dialectic which uh paul record a french french philosopher called moving from first naivete which is just in the sense of the wes anderson it's like just basic understandings of family, this sort of thing. So Papa Steve, this kind of stuff. Like, kids' version of these things. Then you move to the second, the antithesis, which is criticism. And you, things break down, right? There's this breakdown of relationships. He turns out not to be who you thought he was. You know, your parents are not as competent as, as you thought they were. They're kind of weird. Like, those myths, those kind of things you grew up with are not are not really true, right? But the point is to not end at the criticism point, but to get back to the thesis now broadly understood. Not in the sense of like, oh, they're just, you know, it turns out they're just humans, who cares? Because that would be stuck in criticism. But to move back to the thesis and say, no, no, these are my parents and they they care for me and they structured me and they made me who I am. I can't separate from them. And yet at the same time, I also realize that there are particular people that I have a relationship to that is not just you know, following orders, same straight, naive way. And he calls, record calls this synthesis in Hegel, second naivete. So you're back to the starting point. T.S. Eliot talks about this too. Deeply Hegelian, studied under F.H. Bradley in Britain, Oxford. Okay. Um, Getting back there. So I think that there's this, uh, for what Wes Anderson does, at least in this way, there's something about going, you get back to those relationships, as you say, with a new eye to them, but not as like, but again, returning to them as those relationships, whether it be, especially in, as you mentioned, the father figures, because those are the interesting ones, at least you you point out, I think is right in so many of his films. Yeah. um, So it's like, now I'm thinking about it in those terms, and I think that's, that's the lens. That's the hermeneutic as to whether or not he was a Hegelian, the way that like Malik is a Heideggerian. Hard to say, but um, seeing from that light, maybe it's just been so kind of imbued in our culture that you can't but think Hegelianly at this. Which is true. I, mean, I don't know. It could just be true. Just be how thought it, works in general and growth and all <laughs> sorts of things. I mean, Hegel might be just that. Okay, never mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I'm not. I'm it's not, not as I'm good not as Kant. That. I don't know anything about modern philosophy, so I don't even know what I don't know. Um, yeah, but I think that like w- with respect to the first naivete and second naivete, that kind of gives you a way to understand what what at first seems flippant. Um, it's like a flippancy that's all throughout his works. Mm-hmm. His works that makes him sound so esteemed. Um, like for instance, when when you know he cast Bill Murray for the mm. Papa Steve part in the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, apparently he had a conversation with him and he said like, "Hey, you know, there's the way I envision it, there's going to be some some parts where you're in a speedo." He's like, "You you might want to." you know, like lose some weight, work out a little bit. And Bill Murray just said, nah. (laughs) Um, And there's this kind of like the, the spirit of nah is, is present throughout his films. It's like, you know, we could really go for this and overact this as it were. And it's just like, nah, you know, you just get the kind of distinct impression that people are just like, "Mm, whatevs. Um, and then from there, you move to a deeper appreciation of the relationships that you had formerly just kind of treated maybe somewhat irresponsibly. So like in the Royal Tenenbaums, for instance, you got these three kids, one super talented tennis player, 
the other adopted daughter who is, you know, like a really talented playwright as a kid and the other who is uh, played by Ben Stiller, who's like a venture capitalist. Um, and they all age kind of tragically and their lives end up really terribly. Um, and it seems like their father is somewhat to blame for that. And then you, you encounter them later in life and the father says that he's dying. It's hard to say whether or not he's dying. Well, probably not. He's probably just lying to get back in touch with his family. And they're all grappling with the fact of their, their disappointment in their father, but in different ways. I mean, it's really pronounced in one, but it's, it's still there with the other two. Like they've all just kind of been let down as human beings and their lives, which seems so promising are somewhat tragic. And yet it's dealed with, excuse me, dealed with, it's dealt with in the outset very flippantly. But in the, by the time you come to the end, you have these like a series of come to Jesus moments or reconciliations, which because you've arrived at them through the means uh, that, that, you know, Wes Anderson has employed, they don't feel saccharine, but if you were just to start at the end of the movie, you'd be like, wow, this is kind of, it's kind of rich. It's kind of fresh. Um, so it's like, he's coming back to their, yeah, like their original, I don't know, view on their father, but renewed through this experience of him having tried a little bit. And I think may maybe that's the point. Uh, you see it in, in all of these different relationships. All it takes is, is just to try a little bit. And even though her father, played by Gene Hackman in that movie, tries in such terrible, terrible ways that are basically amount to like lying, cheating, and stealing, there, there's some sincerity to it. And it's, it, all it takes is a little bit of sincerity to salvage that first naivete uh, and make of it something richer, a second naivete or whatever one would call. So from I flippancy to a kind of mature, honest irony. Yeah, and I have to say, I mean, one of the things Wes Anderson is, just as a cast study... Um, he casts just superb people, just does a great job of casting people against the grain and people, and they just do a great job. So like, just, he's spectacular in that way. All right. Now, um, so I'm a philosopher. So like if this was Hegel explaining, we've, we've, we've sold this, this episode's done. We could wrap it up. It's fine <laughs> with me. We got to Hegel. We're good. Um, but you're a theologian by nature, uh, and practice and uh, soon to be licensed, uh, <laughs> licensed, licensed to theologize at the doctoral level. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm satisfied with Hegel. Bring it to God though. Yeah. I think um, – so I think there's a fundamental insecurity in all human people as to whether or not it's possible to like – to connect with other people. You know, call it what you want, but everyone Struggle has for basic... recognition maybe, like a master-slave dialect? Okay. <laughs> I, mean, I think everyone is geared towards communion. If you, if you put it in you know, St. Thomas terms, in terms of the natural law, everyone has the desire to know God and to live – you know, in society, to shun ignorance, to avoid offending those with whom you live. And if you just kind of, you take that all together. I mean, everyone has a desire for communion of some sort. We're, we're political and social animals and part of our perfection, like we're realized in a communal setting. And as a result of which we have a deep, deep desire for it. But I think a lot of us uh, feel some frustration uh, because those relationships are hard or because they disappoint or because we've been wounded in those relationships. And I think one of the things that's cool about Wes Anderson is that basically all of his relationships are wounded in some way, shape or form. Um, but he's able to, to salvage something from them. Um, and I think that, you know, whenever you're talking about salvage, you're talking about salvaging something from a wreck. And I think that's, that's kind of the point of, you know, the passion, death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is that he took on the wreck of our human nature so as to salvage it in this really weird way, um, which seems kind of ironic almost. And I think some people would attribute that type of perspective to like the gospel of John, for instance, that the Lord is like undermining our narrative about human communion by upsetting it from within. Um, so I think that, yeah, like there are serious, serious obstacles to human communion. 
Um, but like the desire that we have for reconciliation, for instance, the desire that we have to overcome distance in our relationships, the desire that we have for something permanent, right? Real, uh, the be like to be able to like share with somebody on a way where you feel like, yeah, we're really firing on, on all cylinders. Like those, those are genuine desires that actually correspond to real goods. And though they have to be, you know, striven for through, you know, trial and tribulation yet they they remain available even for the most broken of people like no one is no one is broken beyond repair until such time as he or she takes his you know last breath so i think that i think that wes anderson in a light-hearted way like it doesn't become decaynesian mm -hmm. where it's like the world is terrible we're in a workhouse you know like my first wife dora died and now i will marry agnes it's like it's not it's not like that it's not like reading hard times it's it, he manages to conduct this whole discourse in a really light-hearted way which is which is commendable uh, mm -hmm. especially given <laughs> given the reasons for which we might be led in another direction. So I think it's awesome. I think it's cool. You know, it's a, it's a gentle, it's, yeah, it's like a gentle lesson about the human condition. Uh, and it opens up a space for us to deal with the brokenness and our relationships and woundedness and that no one's perfect. And even admit it might ourselves because it's so much easier. I mean, it's easier to deal with these kind of situ situations and the difficulties and irony and laughter in a sense, because you can irony and laughter and humor have a distancing effect to them in the way that his his movies do. And uh, reality is just what hit you hard, bro. Um, it's just really it's it's tough sometimes. And so getting a little space on it, you know, just like when you're when you're correcting someone or if you're trying to help someone get to something, a little joke or a little you know slight slight humor or something or irony or something sometimes helps someone along because. It, we're so fragile often, or we can be. And so perhaps Wes Anderson provides us with, provides you with a space that you can enter in some of these, your own issues or our own woundedness and our need for communion in a way that uh, is not just entertaining and enjoyable, but also kind of sticks with us and forces out things we wouldn't otherwise have. Boom. Um, any final, if someone's going to start with a Wes Anderson film, so perhaps uh, our dear listeners uh, and viewers have not seen Wes Anderson films. It's possible. Um, if, if you have not seen a Wes Anderson film, where would you start? Um, I think fantastic. Mr. Fox, e each of the, I like most of the film, not all of the films, but m some of the films have like one or two scenes, which, um, make them kind of unrecommendable. Uh, so you just have to be on the mm -hmm. lookout for that and skip appropriately. But fantastic. Mr. Fox, I think that I can, I can recommend wholeheartedly and without reservation. So yeah. It's okay. like that episode that we did about David Foster Wallace where we're like, this is a great collection of essays, but you have to skip the first one and the seventh one and the ninth one. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, yeah. And if you go to like kidsinmind.org or something, wherever that is, that's a great website you can check on. They have the they, – they list out in detail where everything is so you can always – so there's some scenes. Each one – I don't think any of them are particularly awful or uh, blood-curdling or moral-destroying, but um, there is – there are things to be worried about them and, and to avoid. But Mr. Fantastic Mr. Fox and Isles of Dogs, I think, is a similar – um, they're true. also that's but that's just also a weird one. They're all weird. Anyway, all right. This has been uh, Father Gregory Pine, Father Bonaventure on God's planning. Um, just as a update on some things that I'm going to try to remember to say. Um, if you like this episode, please go to social media and like it. That apparently does things for us and for you and the universe. And uh, if you want, if you think someone else would like to know about Wes Anderson films, uh, or just films in general, or Hegel then uh, share this episode with, with, with other people and do all that, however that happens. Um, if you want to support our, uh, our s staff member, uh, I can't say her name out loud because then you'll hunt her down, I think, although maybe people already know her. 
Anyway, we'll call her KP, and uh, she does fantastic work, but um, she needs to eat, so we give her small things. So if you want to support us on Patreon, there are different levels of that. We join you. As, you can join. We, we pray for you, offer masses, these sort of things, and mainly you're helping out to support uh, uh, KP for doing the work that we otherwise wouldn't be able to do. Uh, and she does a fantastic job with uh, with all the producing and that. So thanks to her as well for doing that. Um, uh, and uh, if you want to support that. Um, any other notes, news and notes I have to answer, uh, put in there, Father Gregory? We have a retreat this summer, July 23rd through 25th in Long Island, New York. Um, Intimate relationships are kind of like weird relationships, but in-person relationships are less weird relationships. So we thought it'd uh, be a good way to kind of invest more in the relationships that we're building through the podcast. So you're most welcome for those ages 21 to 33 uh, to apply for that retreat. Um, and the cost is $350 and it's, uh, should be great. We'll all be there. You can go to the website, godsplaining.org. Org. Org. You can look at things and the website's always getting better. There's merch on there. I don't know if you want to put a sticker on your forehead or on your car, or whatever. So it's all there. You know how the internet works. Some of us do, too. Um, but until next time, enjoy Easter season. Christ is risen. Alleluia, alleluia. And we're praying for you. You pray for us. God bless. Thanks for listening to God's Planning, a work of the Dominican Friars of the province of St. Joseph. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Leave a review on your podcast app and visit us at godsplaining.org.